Hello and welcome back to The Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 75 called Belisarius and the Battle of Dara. In the last episode, we heard about Procopius's conflicting description of Justinian and Theodora in his works, which form by far the most important source material for this extraordinary period of Roman history. But I didn't mention the next most important person in our story, or indeed perhaps the most important of all, the general who reconquered much of the West. And this is, of course, Belisarius. Belisarius's early life is obscure. He was probably born around 505, based on Procopius's observation that in 526, when he engaged in his first recorded military action, he was, quote, a young man wearing his first beard. Procopius says he was born in a small place called Germania, right in the centre of the Balkans, between Thrace and Illyria. But we know nothing about his family and his upbringing. Given Procopius's attack on Justinian and Theodora in the secret history, as you heard about, for being low-born, we can assume that, since he says nothing about Belisarius's family, it was probably respectable, but perhaps not that wealthy or illustrious. Just like Justinian, and before him, his uncle Justin, Belisarius enlisted in the Imperial Guard in Constantinople. Our first mention of him is by Procopius, who says that in 526 he was a senior officer in the guards, and along with another senior officer, Sitas, he led a raid into Persian Armenia. This was a success, and the Romans returned with plunder and captives, although a second raid later in 526 was a failure. What we can deduce from the record of these raids is that Belisarius and Sitas had favourably impressed Justinian, since they were both senior officers at a very young age. Justinian was no doubt cultivating men who he felt were capable and loyal. Loyalty was especially important since he needed his own supporters to oust his many enemies and rivals. Once Vitalian had been assassinated, as you've heard about, the next threat was Hypatius, Anastasius's nephew and a potential imperial candidate. Hypatius had too many supporters for Justin to eliminate or sideline him, and instead he felt required ostensibly to support him by appointing him Magister Militum for the East, in fact taking this position from Justinian himself when he was promoted to being co-Augustus. Thus, when Justinian became sole emperor in 527, Hypatius was his main rival. And this created an interesting situation with Persia, since Hypatius, as the supreme commander on the Persian border, was the man who had had most contact with them. So let's take a step back and revisit what's been happening with Persia. As we discussed in episode 71, the 5th century had witnessed a period of unprecedented peace between Sasanian Persia and Rome, largely because the Sasanians were distracted by the White Huns, whose raids on their eastern border culminated in the defeat of the main Persian army at the Battle of Balkh in 484, in which the Shah Peroz was killed, a watershed moment similar to the Battle of Adrianople in 378 for the Romans. 
After 484, Persia became a vassal of the White Huns, or Hephthalites, as their reigning dynasty was called. This continued into the 6th century, although the Shah Kavad persuaded them to support a war with Rome as a way of forcing the Romans to pay tribute. This resulted in a return to Roman-Persian hostilities from 502 to 506, as we've heard in a previous episode, when the Emperor Anastasius fought the most serious war with Persia for over a century, centred on control of the border fortress city of Amida, which changed hands twice, falling first to the Persians before being retaken by the Romans. That war ended as a stalemate, followed by two decades of peace as Kavad concentrated on internal challenges from both the Persian nobles and the White Huns. Our sources are vague, but Procopius claims Kavad wanted an alliance with Rome and offered his son Cosroes for adoption by the Emperor Justin. This was probably a way of strengthening his own position internally to deter the Persian nobles from mounting a coup against him. Something similar had happened a century before when the pro-Roman Persian Shah Yazdegerd had adopted the young Theodosius II, cementing his claim to the throne if his father Arcadius died early, leaving him underage, which was in fact exactly what happened. So this set a precedent which Kavad now wanted to repeat for his own succession. However, when a Persian embassy arrived in Constantinople in 525 to propose this new alliance, Procopius says Justin and Justinian panicked that it was a trick for the Persians to inherit the Roman Empire and rejected it outright, deeply offending Kavad and sparking off a new war. So what was really going on? The historian Peter Heather has argued there was a more Machiavellian subplot to all of this. He thinks it was Justin who was worried Hypatius might get the credit for this peace initiative with Persia, and so he opposed it. Justin offered to make Cosroes effectively the vassal of Rome rather than the adopted heir of the emperor. When this was presented to a Persian delegation led by Cosroes himself, he was not impressed, as Procopius describes. Quote, Cosroes left and went off to his father with nothing accomplished, deeply injured at what had taken place, and praying that he might exact vengeance for their insult against him. End quote. Whatever the correct interpretation of the political situation, Justin's support for the Kingdom of Iberia in the southeast Caucasus also aggravated the situation. The Iberians had long been Christians, although Iberia technically fell within the Persian sphere of influence. So when the Iberian king Gorgonese appealed to Justin for help against Persia and Justin supported him, this was another irritation for Kavad. The price was war. Keen to bolster his authority internally by taking the initiative, Justinian, who was by now emperor, created a new field army in Armenia, presumably formed from the Pricental field armies, originally created to oppose Attila, but now spread out along the Persian frontier. In 527, this newly constituted army was unleashed against the Persians, led by Sitas. 
it achieved some success. Meanwhile, Justinian had plans for Belisarius. He promoted him to Dux of Mesopotamia and instructed him to advance towards the key Persian stronghold of Nisibis in central Mesopotamia and build a new fortification at Minduos, only four miles from Nisibis. This was a blatant provocation to the Persians, who sent an army to destroy the fortress in the summer of 528. Justinian reinforced Belisarius's troops with detachments led by the generals Buzes and Kutzes, but these were routed and Bootses was indeed captured. Both Procopius and our other main chronicler Malalus are vague about this battle and it might not have been that large or significant. Whatever the case, Belisarius wasn't in overall command and escaped punishment for the defeat. Indeed, he benefited since, with Bootses captured and Kutzes in disgrace, he was promoted to the supreme command of the armies in the east, Magister Militum per Oriens, ousting Hypatius. In 529, he went to Constantinople, where Justinian personally appointed him to this high rank, which was quite remarkable for a young man still in his early 20s. Belisarius's rise to power had been meteoric, but now he had to perform. In 529, a Roman embassy met Cavad, who demanded more tribute from the Romans. As discussed in episode 71, tribute was highly symbolic for the Persians, since the Persian nobles regarded it as a test of the Shah's strength. If tribute was paid, they would respect him. If it wasn't, they would look to replace him. It's also true semantics were important since the Romans didn't call it tribute, but a payment towards the joint cost of the Caucasus' defences against the Huns, which was traditionally shared between Rome and Persia in the 5th century. But this time, Cavad wanted to increase Rome's payment to bolster his own authority. Justinian refused. In the spring of 530, he instructed Belisarius to muster the army of the east for battle. Troops began arriving at Dara, opposite Nisibis. At the same time, the Persian army was mobilising. The Battle of Dara in 530 has passed into legend. It was Belisarius's first great test. He had at his command around 25,000 troops, mostly the regular Roman units helped by some auxiliaries, principally 1,200 Huns and 300 Heruli cavalry. Against him, Cavad had sent a Persian army of around 40,000 with most of its elite heavy cavalry under the command of Perotzes. True to Persian tactics, Perotzes sent Balisarius a message instructing him to prepare a bath and a feast to celebrate the impending Persian victory. 
Meanwhile, Belisarius was at his most resourceful. He decided to meet the Persian cavalry charge with a series of trenches by putting a central trench in front of those on the flanks. He could attack the Persians from the centre if they tried to outflank him. He positioned his cavalry on both flanks and put himself with most of the infantry in the centre. Concealed Behind the infantry, he positioned two groups of 600 Huns, ready to attack the Persians by surprise if they pushed back the Roman cavalry. He also put a group of 300 Heruli horsemen, these were Germanic warriors like the Goths, concealed behind a hill on the Roman left flank. On the first day of battle, the Persian army arrived in full force. Regiments of cavalry and infantry massed in front of the Romans. But Perotzes was reconnoitring his enemy and didn't order an attack. There was a small skirmish between some Roman and Persian horsemen on the Roman right wing, leaving, according to Procopius, seven dead Persians without any Roman casualties. But that was all. Until a young Persian rode right up to the Roman trenches and offered single combat to anyone brave enough to fight him. Procopius says no one in the Roman army responded until the soldiers looked around in astonishment to see a young man walking through their ranks to challenge him. He was Andreas a bath attendant who also trained youths in wrestling in Constantinople. The Persian was equally surprised, but as he hesitated to run this non-combatant through with his sword, Andreas grabbed a spear from a soldier and hit the Persian so hard he fell from his horse, whereupon he jumped on him and slit his throat. An enormous cheer went up from the Roman lines. This infuriated the Persians, who, according to Procopius, sent another warrior, a man of huge stature, who rode up and down the Roman lines, calling out for a challenger and cracking his whip violently. Again, no Roman soldier stepped forward, but the bath attendant suddenly appeared again, against the orders given to him not to do this, but this time wearing armour and riding a horse. He charged at the Persian. They knocked each other off their horses, but using his wrestling skills, Andreas tripped up the much bigger Persian as he rose from the ground and again slit his throat. Procopius was an eyewitness at the battle, and although his account of Andreas's exploits is probably exaggerated, there's nevertheless probably still a grain of truth in it, since single combat was widely practised before pitched battles, although the outcome seldom had much influence on the course of the battle. So it was that day. There was no battle. The Romans did a lot of cheering, and the Persians regarded Andreas's antics as a bad omen and withdrew to their camp. The next day, 10,000 Persian reinforcements arrived. Further messages were exchanged. The Persian leader, Perotzes, called on Belisarius to come to terms and pay tribute rather than face battle. When he refused, he reminded him to prepare his bath for him.
In true Shakespearean fashion, Procopius has recorded the speeches delivered by both Perotzes and Belisarius to their troops. Perotzes called the Romans cowards for digging trenches to hide behind, while Belisarius condemned the Persian infantry as cowards, quote, for their whole infantry is nothing more than a crowd of pitiable peasants who come into battle for no other purpose than to dig through walls and to despoil the slain, end quote. The next day, Perotzes led the Persian army up to the Roman lines. He held half of it in reserve, including the immortals who were the elite regiment. Perotzes commanded the centre and he put Pityaxes in charge of the right wing and the one-eyed Berezmanas, a very experienced Persian general, in charge of the left. According to Procopius, the Persians attacked at noon to disrupt the Romans' midday meal. At first, both sides showered each other with arrows. Procopius says the Persians shot more arrows in a, quote, vast cloud, but the wind blew unfavourably against them, checking the force of their arrows. When most of the arrows were used up, the Persians attacked. On the Persian right wing, a group of white Huns led the Persian attack, pushing the Roman cavalry back. Meanwhile, Belisarius's Huns in the centre, led by Sunicas and Agan, and 300 Heruli horsemen concealed behind a hill at a distance from the trenches, were all waiting to strike. When the White Huns and Persians were pushing the Romans back, the Heruli suddenly charged them by surprise in the rear. Procopius says these German warriors were particularly fierce and brave. Then Belisarius unleashed his 600 Huns into their flank. Surrounded on all sides, the White Huns and Persian cavalry panicked and turned to flight. Procopius says 3,000 Persian horsemen died in the ensuing rout. But the Romans were disciplined and stopped their pursuit before they were overwhelmed by the superior Persian forces lying in wait for them. This was fortunate for the Romans, since the fighting on the right wing had only been a diversion. Perotzes now directed his main attack onto the left wing, commanded by the one-eyed Barismanus the very experienced Persian general. An enormous group of Persian heavy cavalry with the 10,000 immortals leading them advanced against the Roman trenches. The Romans were forced back beyond their trenches, but Belisarius had expected this, which was why he'd dug trenches in the centre at right angles to those on the flanks. In the centre were his heavy cavalry who could cross over the trenches using boards. Belisarius also brought the Huns, led by Sunicas and Agan, over from their victory on the Persian right wing to join the Roman centre. This left the Persians vulnerable to an attack by the Roman centre, and when they advanced too far on their left wing in pursuit of the retreating Romans, that's exactly what happened. Belisarius unleashed the Hunnic and Roman cavalry in the centre against them, as they'd already done on the Persian right wing. According to Procopius, it was the Huns and their leader, Sunicas, who did the most damage now on the left wing. Procopius says Sunicas himself found the Persian standard bearer and hacked him down, whereupon the Persian cavalry rallied around their leader, Berezmanus, before, again according to Procopius, he was himself killed 
by Sunikas. This caused panic in the Persian ranks and many fled, leaving those that had advanced deep into the Roman lines, including the immortals, surrounded. Procopius described the slaughter, quote, and the Romans having made a circle, as it were, around them, killed about 5,000, end quote. With this, the Persian army caved in and fled back towards Nisibis. As Belisarius had predicted, the massed ranks of Persian foot soldiers simply threw away their shields and ran off. Procopius says thousands were killed as they fled, although Belisarius called a halt to the pursuit, fearing that the Persians might turn around and counterattack. Persian casualties must have been well over 10,000 if you include the slaughter of the infantry and the 8,000 Persian horsemen who Procopius says were killed. We have no record of Roman casualties but probably no more than a couple of thousand died. It was a glorious victory as Procopius said, quote, for on that day the Persians had been defeated in battle by the Romans, a thing which had not happened for a long time, end quote. Belisarius had led the Romans to victory, but one thing we haven't addressed is what type of Roman army was he leading? We have so little information about the late Roman army compared with the plentiful literary and epigraphic information about the classical army that analysing, let alone visualising, Belisarius's army has always been difficult. For example, just Trajan's column in Rome by itself provides a vast reservoir of pictorial detail about the army of his day, but we have nothing like this for Belisarius's army. Instead, we're reliant as always on Procopius to provide us with what little insight we have. And the key passage comes early in his account of Belisarius's wars when he describes a type of Roman soldier that Julius Caesar and Augustus would not have recognised. An armoured horseman with sword and spear, but also with a Hunnic-type composite bow he could use with deadly accuracy. This was a military breakthrough because it combined the most dangerous attributes of Rome's enemies, i.e. the Hunnic horse archer, with the armoured horseman, that the Persians and Sarmatians had long used. I'll quote the entire passage since it's so important. Quote, The bowmen of the present time go into battle wearing corslets and fitted out with greaves which extend up to the knee. From the right side hang their arrows, from the other the sword. And there are some who have a spear also attached to them. And at the shoulders a sort of small shield without a grip such as to cover the region of the face and neck. They are expert horsemen and are able without difficulty to direct their bows to either side while riding at full speed and to shoot an opponent, whether in pursuit or in flight. End quote. Some historians have suggested that it was Belisarius himself who invented this new type of Roman soldier, or at least that it was the product of the household guards regiments that were a feature of the late Roman army, called Bucellarii, literally the biscuit eaters, referring to the rations they were paid by their employers. But while the Bucellarii were clearly an important element within the Roman army, and Procopius indeed says that later on in his career, 
Belisarius even had 7,000 of them within his personal retinue, I think we need to look further back in time to the period when Attila the Hun threatened the Eastern Roman Empire in the 440s and 450s to find their true origin. As discussed in episode 67, I suggest there was a remilitarization in the Eastern Roman Empire in response to Attila that involved an expansion and upgrade of the Eastern Roman army. My feeling is that it was in those years that the new type of armoured horse archer described by Procopius was developed and that they were almost certainly concentrated in the Pricental field armies created to save Constantinople from the Huns. Let me conclude by saying that, in my opinion, what gave the Romans victory at the Battle of Dara in 530 was the commander and not the army. Ever since the 450s, I think the Eastern Romans had had good armies, but what they lacked was outstanding generals, just as Rome had needed a military genius like Julius Caesar to conquer Gaul. So it needed another great general to restore the empire. And in Belisarius, at long last, the Romans had found one of the greatest generals in history. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And in the next episode, which will be in two weeks time on the 20th of January, we'll continue with the story of Justinian and Belisarius. And in the meantime, please do leave a review if you like the podcast and do also check out my website, nickholmesauthor.com. Link in the show notes to find maps, blogs and a free ebook. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year and see you next time. (laughs) 